invite you also to, if you have a cell phone, to silence it. Mine's sitting right here. That would be awkward if that went off uh, in the middle. One of the uh, latest Marvel comic books that was turned to a movie held the title Infinity War. And it was a conflict between the good guys and a bad guy, Thanos by name. Thanos uh, purposefully, quite purposely, means death in Greek. Thanos felt it was his place to eradicate much of the population and rebuild it into a utopian dream where all would now function properly with him at the helm. Two major differences mark that movie and where we will be today. And the first one is that movie is fiction. Uh, we stand in the midst of a real battle in the heavenlies that significantly will manifest itself in the physical realm around us. The second difference is that though the movie bad guy Thanos really intended his evil purposes for good and ultimate though misplaced good, the evil in today's scripture holds no such designs for good. Last week in our last Sunday school of the year, we saw that our foe in this life is not a Republican or a Democrat. Our foe is not a black man or a white man or an Asian man. Our foe is not those who abide in gender reality or those who don't. Our foe is not the rich. Our foe is not the poor. You can pick your divisive issue, but it all works back to the same enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, without wavering, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against those created in God's image, but our struggle is against the spiritual realm. In John 8:44, Jesus Christ pointed more clearly that the devil, the father of those who stand opposed to Christ, he is our enemy. He is a murderer and a liar. There is no truth in him. Peter goes on to explain that that devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's not setting up a utopia. He wants to watch it all burn. Revelation 12, 12 makes plain that he knows that his time is short. He knows that the end is declared. So in the time left, he is going to seek to waylay all that he can. Which brings us to the close of John's second epistle. On February 7th, and you can go back if you want to follow it on our church website. You can listen to that message. We examined the importance and the glory of the truth. The word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ in comprehending reality and the importance of it in the life of a believer. Last week we looked at verses 4 through 6 of 2 John and saw the joy that comes to the church when saints walk in the truth. Exhibiting love for one another in their obedience to God's word. John exhorted the church, which he refers to as the beloved lady here, to do that very thing. But as already alluded to, the Christian life is not all sunshine and lollipops. We are in a battle, even now, right now, where you sit. And to that, John now turns his attention. As we 
submerge ourselves into God's word. Let's ask him to guard our hearts and minds and to guard my lips here. Father, we bow heart, mind, and soul before you that you would be glorified in your word, that you would be high and lifted up, that Jesus Christ would be made much of and seen glorious, that we would delight in you, that when we hear of our foe, that we would not flee frightened, but we would stand firm in confidence on the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even now, God, we beg that you would have your way with us. Attune our ears to your voice and guard us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to see here, let me go ahead and uh, just read through where we're going in verses 7 through 11, and then we will pause. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, so, so that we may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or even give him a greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So the first thing we see is that there is a deadly deception at play. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. How bad is the problem? Many, many deceivers, not a few. This is not a scant thing. It's not a localized thing. It's not happening down in the western provinces of China where persecution is intense against the Uyghur people. It's not just New York City. It's here where we are. And oh, by the way, your phone today pretty much takes you everywhere. It's not impersonal. It says they have gone out. Many deceivers have gone out into the world gone out. The implication is there that they have gone out quite possibly from within the church to deceive the world. They have left the gospel. They have left the church to start a corrupted church. John writes for many deceivers. That means he's implying that what he has written previously Four is like a because. He's exhorted us in last week's sermon, he exhorted us to love one another in verse 6. You can look at verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in, in it. Why should you walk in it? Because many deceivers have gone out into the world. One of the byproducts for us, of practicing the graces of God, of loving one another, of abiding in the truth of His Word, and continuing in obedience, is these are defenses against a very real enemy. It is a clear and present danger. You know, it's, it's like somebody arbitrarily screaming fire in a theater. You go, that's, that's a dangerous thing unless it is real. But when smoke is filling the building 
or when the police have been given an indication of an actual bomb threat, then they will clear the building. The danger is real. It is here. It is now. What are these deceivers doing in the world? They've gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They are misrepresenting Christ. Here specifically, they do not confess that he has come in the flesh. Or is coming in the flesh. Most of the translations say the same thing, but what does that mean? Do they deny that his first coming was in the flesh? Or do they deny that his second coming will be in the flesh? In John's gospel and his epistle, he has emphasized that Jesus Christ did come in the flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us in 1 John 1.14. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2, he also says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So is it is he defending against those who would say he hasn't come in the flesh or that he's not going to come in the flesh? And really, you can dig away and you go, it's, it's really not going to clear it up. But I might argue that that's not the point of his comment. His point of the comment is that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. The nature of Christ has been the source of debate throughout the millennia. In the first millennia, in the first thousand years after the building of the church, there were all kinds of church councils to try and put down heresies that kept popping up. It was like whack-a-mole in the dark ages. Was Jesus Christ really human? And how did that work? Was he really divine? Was he really God? And how did that work? And what was the relationship to the Father And how did that work? But John is making plain to the elect lady and her children, to the saints of the churches, that many deceivers are going to go out and corrupt what the Word of God says about who Jesus Christ is. In John's Gospel and in his epistles, he touches on some of these heresies that will pop up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. John writes, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So one of the heresies is that he wasn't really the Messiah. John goes on in that same verse, This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Well, here's another heresy he's putting down, both the divinity of God the Son and God the Father and the distinction between God the Son and God the Father. God the Son isn't just a different flavor of God the Father. They are distinct persons within the Trinity. John also marks the deity of Christ in John chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, In the beginning was God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No doubt, no equivocation there. And throughout his gospel 
as he highlights the things that Jesus said, he highlights that Jesus Christ knew himself to be co-equal with God. Highlighting in John chapter 8, verse 58, says, Before Abraham was, I am. That's not bad grammar. That is declaring himself equal to Yahweh, the covenant God of the Jews. So how does deception of Christ play out for us today? As with any counterfeit, we must first understand the truth. We have to understand the identity of Jesus Christ. And to do that, we have to saturate ourselves in Scripture. We must understand by Scripture that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We have to understand from the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ Himself declares Himself to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Fully God and fully man. It is the stuff that creeds have been born of. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Paul tells the church at Colossae in chapter 1. He is the truth. He himself declares to us in John chapter 14 verse 6. He is life. He is the resurrection and the life. Peter declares there is no other name under heaven by which man may be saved. So we are saturated by it in God's word and we must understand the truth. We must have a solid Christology. Do we know and understand Christ? As we sing our songs, they should exalt him in truth and beauty. Our preaching must describe him and give him the glory that he is due. Our prayers must be through him as he is the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Only when we see with clarity who Christ is can we see how the world strives to strip him of that glory. We see this plainly in a secular culture that parodies Jesus Christ in film and on television. Out of the mouths of the secular, Jesus Christ becomes the curse of the unknowing and the ignorant. At best, Jesus Christ is merely a good teacher. He's a good teacher. And they will cherry pick certain things from the Sermon on the Mount where they go, ah, that's great. But when Jesus Christ himself declares himself to be the great I am, he doesn't leave that option open to be just a good teacher. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said the only options available apart from the fact that he is God, is that he is either a bald-faced liar, he is a raving lunatic, or he is Satan himself. But we would expect such distortions in the secular world. But saints, such distortions have come into the church. I stated... Last week, or I cited a study by David Haskell, a Canadian professor who studied progressive churches in, the, in North America, and he found that 58% of progressive clergymen do not believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected in the flesh. 58%. In Europe, where the secular assault has gone on far longer, a 2015 survey of the Church of England of the Church of England found that worshipers there 4 in 10 did not believe that Jesus Christ was a real person. 
25% of those 28 to 34 think he was a mythological character. Well, that's Canada, North America, that's England. Let's go to Tulsa. The Reverend Todd Freeman is the pastor of College Hill Presbyterian Church in Tulsa. He's the co-founder of the Progressive Religious Coalition of Tulsa. And he said, the progressive understanding is that you don't have to believe the story is literally true for it still to carry the same weight and meaning. So the gospel account is really no more relevant in truth than is how the Grinch stole Christmas. Because you can get really good lessons from that story as well. He goes on, progressives would still say that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and is with us. Well, that's good. What we disagree with is the idea of the physical presence of Jesus, the physical bodily resurrection. If he's dead, how can he be with us? And how can I have fellowship with a dead man? The one who said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not just a warm, fuzzy idea. He goes on. We're saying to people, don't give up on Christianity if you can't believe in the literalness of the stories. There's still a place for you if you don't take the stories literally. This is a Presbyterian minister. St. If Jesus Christ is not raised and Christ is not real, you are still in your sins and we are to be pitied above all people. Paul said that very thing to the Corinthian church and it's true for us here today. So this is the danger. This is the corruption. Deception is going out and they are going to try and have you think weird things about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's imperative that we stand on the word. And so John continues and exhorts the church to watch yourself. Watch yourself. Verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Watch yourselves. Maintain your cadence. We understand this exhortation. Keep on, keeping on. Pay attention. There's a red light on your dashboard. You have to pay attention. You're coming up. I don't know if you've ever driven from Denton to Decatur. But as you get on 287 there, there's a warning sign that says 25 miles an hour in the turn. Well, most of those warning signs are padded, right? Not that one. Not that one. You best be going about 15 to make that turn. There, or you're going to be hitting the curb. We have to take these warning signs for real. We have to keep on. If the dentist tells us, hey, keep brushing your teeth, man, it would be prudent for us to keep brushing our teeth. What is the caution that John warns against so that we do not lose what we, so that you do not lose what we have worked for? So this kind of sounds like you might lose your salvation. We have labored upon that point often 
in our church and our Sunday school and from our pulpit, but let me just touch on it briefly. If you can lose it, it wasn't salvation that you had. John writes in 1 John chapter 2.19 that if you do not abide in Christ and his teachings, you never had God to begin with. Perseverance is required. Who will persevere? The one who is saved. How will they persevere? Only by the power of Christ in their life. For Christ said in John 15, 5, Apart from me you can do nothing. I persevere because God is persevering me. So this is John's call for us to persevere. That you may not lose that for which he and others have toiled in their lives. These exhortations are common. The women have been hearing this in Hebrews. The men studied Hebrews last fall in our study. And that is the call about you hear about, well, I don't want to be that guy who derails his faith. Well, that guy never had the faith to begin with. He enjoyed the fellowship of the believers. He looked like he belonged here. Why? Because he was there. He was among us. But then he went out from us. One of the indicators that I do have eternal life is perseverance. John writes at the end of his first letter in chapter 5 and verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John does not want them to lose what they have striven for. Keep on. Keep on keeping on. Don't buy the lies of the world. Some may argue that this is merely a loss of reward that John is talking about. In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, we read about the fact that every saint is going to appear before God and our works are going to be assessed through fire. Our works as believers. And those things that we built for our glory and for our own pleasure, they're going to burn away. They're, they were useless. They were meaningless. They're going to go away like straw and stubble. But those things that we build on for the glory of Christ, building on the foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ, those things are going to abide. Those things are going to remain. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, if we do it all to the glory of God, that will be a treasure for the living God. The fire will show it for its beauty and its purity. I don't want to be saved as through the fire with nothing to show for this life. We each innately want our lives to count for something. But if it simply counts for me, it is nothing. But if the life I am living is for God's glory and His pleasure, oh, even the small of cup of water will be worth gold. So saint, watch yourself that you might win a full reward. And how do we do this? He goes on in his teaching in verse 9. Everyone who does not go on ahead does not abide in the teaching of Christ. 
And everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. How do I abide? I move into the teaching of Christ. I abide in the teaching of Christ. And the warning first comes, don't run ahead. Well, what does that mean? We were at the Grand Canyon a few weeks ago, and there are no fences. There's a path, and about four feet over, there's nothing. And if you were taking little ones there, not only are you saying, do not run ahead, you are hanging on to them for dear life so that they don't run ahead. They have to abide on the path or their destruction is sure. We, as saints, have to stay on the word of God. Some will say, I need more. I need a new revelation. I need something else. Paul says, you don't need something else. Paul writes to Timothy, Paul's very last letter. He wrote to Timothy in chapter, or, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy. All scripture is given by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What else do you need? Nothing. Nothing else. To run ahead is to find dissatisfaction with Christ and His Word. I need something else. God and His provision for me, well, that's not enough. I need something else. John warns us that such a one does not have God. So what's he encouraged us to do? Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Abide, live, dwell, soak, saturate. There can be no greater emphasized truth in this church. It comes up again and again and again that to live a full and healthy life in Christ, I must have a deep and active relationship with Christ. But to have a deep and active relationship with Christ, who is the Word of God, I must ever be soaking in the Word of God. I read it because I can. I think on it because I can. Because it is a joy. I hearken back to pastor's Sunday messages during the week because I can. I've got, I've got his little note thing on the back of my bulletin. Or I take notes. Or if you've forgotten it completely, you can re-listen to it again. I speak to God, or I speak to one another. I speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ about God's word. I speak about the sermons that I hear, the messages I hear, to exhort and encourage them. I share it with a friend or a coworker and a family member. Why? Because I can. Do I have any greater treasure? I hope not. And you're going to say, I'm not feeling it. And I get that. Because sometimes I'm not feeling it. It's because I'm weak. It's because I'm dust. It's 
It's because I still am encumbered by my sinful flesh. Now, if, you have, if you've been out of the Word for a long time, if you've been out of fellowship with Jesus Christ for a long time, I'll tell you, your first trip to the gym is a downer. I'm going to start running again. Okay, good luck with that. Okay, the stitch that you get right there or right there, yeah. Uh, your muscles the next day after lifting, if, if you haven't lifted in a long time, huh? Huh? But I know that it's needful. I know that it's necessary. I know that it is good. It is great. It is my food. You say you can't. I say you can't not. You must. To stay out of the word of God is to stay out of intimacy and fellowship with Christ. To stay out of the word of God is to set yourself up for the deceptions of the world. To buy into them and to be derailed. But John here not only exhorts us to press into our relationship with Christ by pressing hard into his word, he also tells you to avoid the heresies of the deceivers. So much so that he says, do not, no, you cannot welcome them into your home or be part and parcel with their labors. Now, okay, let's, let's understand what it meant to welcome somebody into your home in the first century. You are providing for them. You know, they didn't have Airbnb. They didn't have hotels lining the highway. Oh, we can pull off there. I can go online and look. No, you walk into town and you're kind of hoping at the town square that somebody will recognize, you're not from around these parts, are you? you go, hey, come on over to our place. We got some dinner and we got a place for you to stay. You go, great. That's hospitality. That was the first century church. That was normal. But John says, be aware of those who are traveling with the intent to spread false teachings. The world would exhort you to say, well, you know, you know, whatever you're doing, that's fine for you. And I wish you well. John says, don't even wish them well. Don't even welcome them. Your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may destroy. Do not bring them into your home. Do not provide for them for their ministry. Okay, what is he not saying? He's not saying don't have lost people into your home. Please have lost people into your home. What a great way for them to see the gospel lived out is to have fellowship with you around your table playing card games or whatever. Can I say that in a Baptist church? Yeah, I think I can. John is speaking and warning the church about those who stand as enemies to the gospel who go out in deception. Do not invite them in. So after warning the saints, the church, against the dangerous deception, John goes back to exhorting them about our final point, and that is the sweet savor of fellowship within the body. It starts out, the letter in sweet fellowship, it ends in sweet fellowship. Verse 12, 
Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Even John recognized 2,000 years ago the limitations of the pen. Face to face beats pen and paper any day of the week and twice on Sunday. How blessed we are to have pen and paper because we have his letter here for us today, but he didn't go on. He has more to tell them. I'd rather be with you and fellowship with you. How much better for a pastor to preach to the body face to face where he can see the confusion or the affirmation as opposed to sending a letter and hoping somebody gets it. But it was absolutely necessary in that day. No cars, no planes. A lot of, I hope to be there at some point, based on travel. You never know when you're going to get a boat. How much better the face-to-face, that our joy may be complete, to touch, to have a handshake, to hear your voice, to give a hug. So powerful is face-to-face communication that Harvard Business Review noted that you are 34 times more likely to have someone do what you ask them with a face-to-face request than by text or email. There's investment there. They see your face. They hear your voice. They see your eyes. They catch the nuance and the inflection, the emphasis, the attitude, the tone, and the environment. And you get feedback right away just by looking into their eyes. There's involvement right there. How much better for John to be with the church than to continue? But he had some points to get to them right now because it was going to be a while before he could be with them. This first century comment highlights to us the limits of technology. Any medium that I use outside of the face-to-face, I present to the world the Keith that I want them to see. When I stand before you, I am vulnerable. I can look a fool. I can misspeak. I can start a song off tempo. That may have happened in the past. There is no auto-tuning in this room. But when I write on my iPad or on my phone or on my laptop, I can spell check. I have time to think and muse. I can turn a phrase. I can backspace. I can delete. I cannot hit send. With photos, I can Photoshop them. No, no zits, no warts. But sadly, the more connected we are through social media and our phones, the more disconnected we truly become. Tony Ranke, great quote. He, he wrote a book called 12 Ways Your Smartphone is Changing You. He said, the smartphone is causing a social reversal. The desire to be alone in public but never alone in seclusion. Face-to-face completes our joy. Now, it doesn't end it. That's not what it means. It's not like the race is completed. But think of overflowing. Think of the cup that is overflowing. You go, oh, man, this is great. My cup is overflowing. Liberally supplied over to the brim. What is this joy? This is the joy of Christ. 
John Piper wrote, Jesus wants the joy that he has in the Father to be in us so that we would enjoy the Father the way that he does. John 15, 11, he says that my joy might be in you. These things I have told you that my joy would be in you. That joy that he has for the Father would be in you. That we might then have joy in him and in the Father. And that we might have joy in our fellowship through the Holy Spirit with one another. This is koinonia. This is the intimate fellowship of the Christian church. This is the way it should be. Oh, it is good to see you. I haven't seen Josh's mom and dad in years, and a joy to see them again. To have Josh here with us again in Josh Bradley, as opposed to Josh Briggs. I mean, this is sweet. Sweet fellowship. There's intimacy there. There's relationship there. It should come as no surprise that our joy would be full in the body of Christ because David declares in Psalm 60 and 11, in your presence is the fullness of joy. God the Father has built his church to the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the head. And each one is filled with the Holy Spirit. And in all of this, we have joy with one another. Hence, this beautiful and sweet greeting to another church at the end of this letter. The children of your elect sister greet you. The church that John is currently in sends his greetings to you as well. Our enemy is not from the pages of a Marvel comic book. The very real devil right now prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour and destroy. Deceivers are right now deployed like a cosmic army seeking to destroy the message of the gospel and the identity of Jesus Christ by distorting the truth of our God and our Savior. And yet we don't run around in despair thinking that all is lost. We press hard into the truth of God's word and provide no encouragement to those who are involved in the distortions of God and his word. We find our hope in the God who draws us to himself and we find delight in the sweet fellowship with him within the body he has assembled through the finished work of God the Son and by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, right now, there are so many faces here before me that are going to leave this place and be scattered abroad. I beg for each one that you would guard them. Some may never set foot back in this building again. Watch over them. Strengthen them in your word. Oh God, that they would be impelled day by day to seek their fullness in Christ alone. And that one day we would see each other again in glory and rejoice in what you had done in the days since our parting. Father, for the believers here who remain, please guard and protect your church. That we would ever stay faithful to your word. That we would go from this place and proclaim the truth 
of your word, undistorted, pure, but that we would be people full of grace who love the lost as those who are carrying the image of God. Oh, that some might be saved. Father, we thank you for your work here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.